Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Castillon, Part 2 of 4. On the 21st of May, 1420, King Charles VI of France disinherited his son, the Dauphin Charles, and recognised in his place King Henry V of England as heir to the French throne. Such a remarkable event can only be explained by understanding the terrible civil war that gripped France in the first two decades of the 15th century. The French nobility were split down the middle between those supporting the Dukes of Burgundy and those loyal to the Dauphin, called the Orleanists or Armagnacs. It was at times like these that the fate of the kingdoms, in fact Europe as a whole, depended on the lives of two or three individuals. In this case, Henry V of England, Charles the Dauphin, and any possible future son of Henry and his bride, Queen Catherine. On the 6th of December, 1421, the English were elated at the news that Catherine had given birth to a healthy baby boy in Windsor Castle. The infant was named Henry and became heir to both the English and French crown. King Henry V was in need of such good news because the expected conquest of central and southern France was not going as well as hoped for in the beginning of the year. Most notably, his next eldest brother, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, to whom Henry had given supreme military command in France during a visit back in England, had been killed in battle. At the Battle of Bourget in Anjou on the 22nd of March, Clarence had foolishly launched into an attack on a combined army of French and Scots, without waiting for the main part of his army to catch up. The casualties on the English side were enormous, and a number of nobles captured and held to ransom. Writing from Bourget just after the battle to inform the Dauphin of their victory, the victorious commander, John Stuart, the Earl of Buchan, urged Charles to invade Normandy immediately and use the momentum gained from their victory. But Charles hesitated, demonstrating a sense of caution, which in time became characteristic of him. In contrast, Henry V swiftly returned to France as soon as he had dealt with urgent parliamentary business in London. His first task was to settle disquiet in Paris. First, he marched an army to Chartres, 60 miles southwest of Paris, which was besieged by the Dauphin. Charles immediately abandoned the siege, withdrew across the Loire. Worryingly for the English, the Dauphin had been joined by a contingent from the Duke of Brittany. 
like Burgundy, Brittany at this time enjoyed virtual independence from Paris. The Dukes frequently vacillated between the French and the English, depending on what best served themselves and their duchy. They were unreliable allies, but the type essential to win over if the English hoped to complete their conquest of France. In October, Henry continued the offensive by laying siege to the town of Meaux, 18 miles east of Paris, hoping that it could then be taken before the winter set in. But it was not to be, and as the weather got colder and wetter, dysentery and an outbreak of smallpox hit the English army. The garrison of Meaux held out until the 9th of March 1422, when they abandoned the town and withdrew into a well-defended suburb known as the Market. There they held out for a further two months. Henry was so exasperated that he had the garrison commander beheaded and his body exhibited upside down on his own gallows. The long siege had taken its toll on the English and soon after Henry himself developed a high fever. After summoning his council and laying down the way in which he wished his new kingdom to be governed, he passed away on the 31st of August 1422 at the age of 35. The great irony of Henry's life was that he came so very close to achieving his ultimate goal. Charles VI died on the 21st of October, just seven weeks after his son-in-law. Had Henry V lived longer, he may have been able to achieve his aim of the conquest of France. Not only was he an exceptional military leader, but he commanded the respect of many a French noble who might have been prepared to consider him as the only way out of the long-running civil war. But Henry's death made the task of total conquest by the English all but impossible, and so condemned the French and English to a further three decades of warfare. Henry VI inherited both the thrones of England and France, but as he was still an infant, the question was who would govern the two realms. Constitutionally, the right to govern England should fall to Henry V's eldest surviving brother, John, Duke of Bedford, but Bedford was occupied in France and likely to remain there. The alternative was his younger brother, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. The compromise reached was that Bedford was appointed protector, defender and chief counsellor of England, but he would only exercise these powers when he was in the country. In his absence, they would be held by Gloucester. Bedford was happy to accept, but Gloucester's feeling of resentment over the settlement would over time place considerable strain on the relations between the two brothers. A crucial difference between the two men was their attitude towards Burgundy. Bedford was a passionate believer in the importance of the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, while Gloucester was suspicious of the Duke of Burgundy's loyalty and motives, and disapproved of any idea of concession. Bedford was also genuinely interested in French culture. He gave generously to churches and abbeys, patronised French artists, writers and craftsmen, and owned extensive lands throughout northern France. He was a skilled diplomat who was considered above faction and commanded universal respect. It might be said in today's speak that Bedford had a better understanding of the use of soft power than his younger brother, who instead put his faith in military might alone. As new territory was taken over, Bedford employed the same policies as Henry V, that is, taken over the existing administration rather than attempting to impose English-style institutions. The Normans already had a strong sense of independence from the French, and such feelings were encouraged by the English. 
Juliet Barker writes that, quote, These arrangements were part of a deliberate policy to reconcile the native population to a conquest which Henry intended to be permanent. It was never his intention to expel the indigenous people and replace them with English settlers. England did not have the population to support emigration on such a scale. End quote. The population of Normandy were given the same rights to lands and offices that they had held before the invasion if they submitted to the English. Those, however, who refused to submit were dispossessed. The deliberate policy of Henry and in Bedford was to distribute confiscated lands to Englishmen and create a new class with an interest in maintaining the conquest in the particular area. As war raged between the English and the Dauphin, Philip the Good of Burgundy decided to concentrate his attention on his own lands. He did not go to either of the two royal funerals of the autumn of 1422, and in military matters adopted a mainly defensive policy. On occasion he half-heartedly cooperated with the English on an offensive, but after 1420 normally took to the field only to defend his own frontiers. His attitude could be described as mercenary, only cooperating with the English in return to diverting French tax revenues to the coffers of Burgundy. Instead of involvement in the affairs of France, Philip instead became more and more involved in the conquest of Holland and the unification of the Low Countries under himself. Philip's first acquisition of land was the county of Namur, territory which is today in southern Belgium. Its counts, without an heir in need of cash, sold the rights to his county to Philip in 1420. The bigger prizes that Philip had his eye on were Holland, Zealand and Hainaut. The death of the count of these three lands in 1417 triggered a particularly ferocious conflict for rights to succession. The legal heir was Jacqueline of Hainaut, but her uncle, John of Bavaria, saw an opportunity for his own ambitions. He secured the support of the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, who with far greater pretensions to greatness than real power, was anxious to demonstrate that he was the individual who should decide the lines of succession within the empire. The subsequent developments of the conflict are quite torturous, but can be briefly summarised as follows. In 1418, Jacqueline married John IV of Brabant, a cousin of Philip the Good, with the intention of bringing the lands under Burgundian control. In return, Jacqueline hoped for protection against the claims of her uncle. Through their marriage, the counties of Holland, Zealand and Hainaut, plus the duchies of Brabant and Limburg, were united in a personal union. However, the marriage did not provide the stability sought by Jacqueline and eventually led to estrangement of the couple in 1420. John of Bavaria took over control of most of her lands through force of arms, compelling Jacqueline to flee to England in early 1421. There, her personal charm and valuable inheritance so captivated Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, that he determined to marry her. This greatly annoyed his brother, the Duke of Bedford, who feared this would endanger the alliance with Burgundy, that he had worked so hard to cultivate. When the legitimate Pope refused to grant Jacqueline a divorce, she procured one from the schismatic Pope at Avignon. By the spring of 1423, Gloucester was using the title of Count of Hainaut, Holland and Zealand and making preparations to sail the Channel and fight for the disputed lands. Gloucester's ambitions alarmed Philip the Good, who saw them as a threat to his own position in the Low Countries. 
Nevertheless, Gloucester landed on the continent in the summer of 1424 at the head of a considerable army. At first, Philip tried a conciliatory approach, but when that failed and Gloucester had occupied most of Hainaut, Philip became more forceful and organised an army to confront the invaders. At that moment, John of Bavaria, effective ruler of Holland, died, quite likely murdered. Philip the Good did his best to turn events to his favour and use them to extend his grasp over the Low Countries. He wrote to Gloucester, challenging him to single combat, suggesting that young knights such as themselves should settle their differences by personal combat rather than by waging public war. The date of the contest was set for St George's Day, the 23rd of April. Whether or not the proposed duel was a bluff on the part of Philip or for real is unclear. Anyhow, Gloucester never turned up. Instead, for reasons which are obscure, he decided to abandon his newly won county of Hainaut and return to England. Jacqueline was left defenceless and was soon captured by Philip the Good. But she was a woman of determination and resource. In September 1425, she made a dramatic escape from her house arrest and managed to rally the forces of opposition to Burgundian rule of Holland. Jacqueline requested support from her husband, the Duke of Gloucester, who set about raising a force of 1,500 English troops to support her struggle. The English arrived at the port of Brouwershaven, where they rendezvoused with their Zealand allies. There they were intercepted by troops loyal to Philip of Burgundy. The result of the Battle of Brouwershaven was a heavy defeat for the English, many of whom were killed or captured. The result was devastating to Jacqueline's cause. Without foreign support, Jacqueline was unable to resist the full strength of Burgundy, and she was compelled to surrender the administration of her territories to Philip. By the end of the 1420s, Philip had also gained firm control of the Duchy of Brabant. Richard Vaughan, in his book Philip the Good, writes that the incorporation of the counties of Holland, Zealand and Hainaut, as well as Brabant, was the culmination of a gradual process. Nevertheless, he writes, quote, The acquisition of these territories was of the utmost significance in the history of Burgundy. In mere size and material resources, Philip's state was increased by more than one-third. Moreover, it was shifted further away from France and towards the German-speaking world of the Holy Roman Empire. Another impact of the conflict in the Low Countries was growing tension in Anglo-Burgundian relations. However, thanks to the skilful diplomacy of the Duke of Bedford and his good relations with Philip, the two sides continued allied in French lands despite their differences elsewhere. Back in France, conflicts still raged between the English and supporters of Charles the Dauphin. Charles had himself proclaimed king on the 30th of October 1422, just six days after the death of his father, Charles VI. To history he is known as Charles VII, but accounts, at least English ones of the Hundred Years' War, refer to him still as Charles the Dauphin, which for now I will also do. He had not been crowned as king, and at least as many then recognised the infant Henry VI of England as the legitimate king of France. Charles's image in history is ambivalent. On the one hand, he is known in France as the victorious, or the well-served, whose reign witnessed the defeat of the English and their removal from the continent. On the other hand, his image is anything but heroic, and often overshadowed by that of Joan of Arc. Before his later successes, Charles was mockingly referred to as the King of Bourges, the name of the fortified town that Charles fled to and held his court. 
In his biography of Charles, the historian M.G.A. Vale quotes the following excerpt from a play on Joan by George Bernard Shaw. End quote. The Dauphin is at Chinon, like a rat in a corner, except that he won't fight. We don't even know that he is the Dauphin. His mother says he isn't, and she ought to know. End quote. Vale writes how this represents the conventional view of Charles VII, at least to the English. In it he appears as a, quote, petulant, ineffective creature, tortured with doubts about his own legitimacy and consequently his right to the crown, end quote. Vale does admit that it is a characterisation which had some basis in historical sources for the reign, but overall believes the portrayal is unfair. Charles' appearance was rather unprepossessing. He had small, rodent like eyes, a long, bulbous nose, and unhealthy colouring of the skin. Physically, he was short, skinny, had poor legs and shoulders which were too broad. As for his character, he is sometimes seen as distrustful, capricious, devious, and superstitious. He is known to have had a keen interest in astrology, which for some was suspiciously similar to sorcery, but was not an uncommon practice among the leading figures of the time. The most severe accusation levelled against Charles was his inaction against the English, and neglect of what appeared to some as his duties of kingship. Like a French medieval Nero, he is portrayed as fiddling while the nation around him burns. His perhaps overcautious attitude can be attributed to the precarious situation he found himself in as a teenager, with the burden of the task of recovering French sovereignty resting on his young shoulders. A specific incident in October 1422 may have contributed to his timidity. The floor of a room in which he was holding court at La Rochelle collapsed beneath him, killing some of his entourage. From then on he suffered from a phobia of heights and public places. Charles also lived in a period where old forms of authority were increasingly under question. The papacy had been contested since the outbreak of the Great Schism of 1378, and in Germany the title of emperor was disputed by different parties. Then, after the disaster of the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396, when many French and Burgundian nobles had been routed and captured by an infidel Turkish army, the West was no longer expanding, but on the defensive. Crusading was now directed against heretics, such as the Hussites in Bohemia, rather than against the Muslims. If Charles was too cautious, it was because his confidence had been rocked by the English invasion of his country, his abandonment by his parents, and the realisation that the most important thing for the survival of his dynasty was for he himself to survive. A brave offensive against the English would give him an image more fit for a king, but one moment of bad luck and his death would give his most bitter enemies, the English, their best chance of success in their plans to dominate France. There had been conflict with the English for centuries, but was always, beforehand, a feudal dynastic struggle. Now France was embroiled not only in a national war against England, but in a civil war that had torn the country into two. The stakes had never been higher and he lived in a time of history when personal rule really mattered. Vale writes that although Charles was timid and cautious, he was highly astute. Surrounded by courtiers with their own private interests, who could only be trusted as long as they could be rewarded, Charles was able to successfully deploy faction as a means to serve his own ends. He played off the different nobles, never allowing one to become too powerful. Also, Charles was determined not to give in. Both his elder brothers, who were Dauphins before him, were linked by marriage to the English and Burgundians, and may have been more willing to come to a compromise agreement to divide up France, 
but not Charles. One of his first actions as leader of the resistance was to enter in negotiations with the Scots and Castilians for a new army to help expel the English from France. Charles's plan was to bolster his legitimacy by fighting his way to the city of Rheims so that he could be crowned in the cathedral, the place where for centuries kings of France had received their coronation. His principal adversary, John of Bedford, meanwhile made plans to wipe out the remaining Armagnac garrisons on the frontiers of Normandy and then extend the conquest south into the counties of Anjou and Maine. In August 1424, Bedford led his troops to besiege the town of Ivry, near Le Mans. A considerable Armagnac army, composed of not only French but a large number of their Scottish allies, set out to relieve Ivry, but by the time they were nearby, they heard that the town had already fallen. Rather than immediately confront the English, it was agreed to attack the English strongholds on the Norman border, beginning with Venoia in the west. There, the Scots tricked the garrison by pretending to be a group of English fleeing from an imagined defeat at Ivry, and so took the town without a fight. Bedford received news that Venoia was in French hands, and resolved to make his way there as quickly as he could, arriving two days later on the 17th of August 1424. There he found the Franco-Scottish army waiting for him on an open plain about a mile north of the town, and so began one of the most important, if less well-known battles of the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Venoia. The French division positioned themselves on the left, supported by wings of Milanese cavalry, while the Scots on the right were supported by a similar wing of cavalry from Lombardy. They realised that the key to defeating the English was to prevent their longbowmen from causing the same damage they had in earlier battles such as Agincourt. So their plan was to use their heavily armoured Italian cavalry to charge down the English archers before they could launch their deadly storm of arrows. The battle started at about four o'clock in the afternoon. Bedford marched forward with his troops until they were within arrow range. There they halted and the archers started to drive their stakes into the ground, employing the same tactics used at Agincourt to ensnare the cavalry. But the ground had been baked hard by the summer sun and the stakes could be forced in only with difficulty. Seeing an opportunity, the Milanese began an immediate charge. They swept the archers before them, drove straight through the army, but then, instead of regrouping to strike from behind again, proceeded to pillage the English baggage train. The English soldiers rallied and began a counter-attack against the advancing foot soldiers. They were joined by the archers who fought at close quarter once their arrows went out, and together pushed the French line back into the Scots behind them. The battle reached its closing stages when Bedford wheeled from the south to take the Scots on the right flank. Now almost completely surrounded, the Scots made a ferocious last stand, but were slaughtered where they stood. The English victory at the Battle of Venoia is said to match that at Agincourt. Despite its inferior numbers, Bedford completely routed the enemy forces. Thousands of the enemy lay dead and many more were captured. The Scottish army, upon which Charles depended, was all but annihilated and would no longer play an important part in the war. The English, meanwhile, could push home their advantage and seize the military initiative. By October, they had taken several frontier fortresses and were growing in confidence. Another consequence of the battle was that it persuaded many people, who had up until then resisted, to accept English occupation. The key region in the conflict at this point of time was the region of Orleans, southwest of Paris. Here the French achieved their first significant victory in late 427, when they lifted an English siege at the town of Montagy, south of Paris. 
The two commanders responsible were Etienne de Vignol, nicknamed La Haya, and John of Orleans, also known as the Count of Dunois, or the Bastard of Orleans. The latter nickname came from being the illegitimate son of Louis I, Duke of Orleans, and was in some ways a term of respect, since it acknowledged him as acting head of a branch of the royal family during the captivity of his half-brother, Duke Charles of Orleans. The relief of Montagy encouraged uprisings in the thinly garrisoned English-occupied region of Maine to the west, threatening to undo recent English gains. However, the French failed to capitalise on the aftermath of Montagy, in large part because the French court was embroiled in an internal power struggle between the constable Arthur de Richemont and the chamberlain Georges de la Tremolay. The inner French conflict had reached such a point that their partisans were fighting each other in the open field by mid-1428. Arthur de Richemont was the brother of the Duke of Brittany. In 1423, he had married Margaret, a sister of Philip the Good of Burgundy, at the same time as Bedford had married Anne, another sister of Philip's, as part of a triple alliance, that is, between Burgundy, Brittany and England. The story of Arthur is not untypical of many a noble at the time who would be prepared to switch sides in order to gain themselves personal advantage. Initially a committed Armagnac, he had been captured at Agincourt and remained an English prisoner for seven years. After he took an oath of loyalty to Henry V, he was released and fought for the English against his former French allies. But when Charles VII offered him the office of constable of France, Arthur was very tempted to defect back to the French. First he consulted his brother-in-law, Philip, who, provoked by Gloucester's invasion, advised him to accept. Arthur's second change of allegiance gave Burgundy a useful contact in the court of Charles of Dauphin, and was a clear rebuff to the English. The English nobles themselves had their own quarrels, most notably between Bedford and his brother Gloucester, who had very different ideas about how to best contact operations in France. But in 1428 they were ready to try and take advantage of French disunity by raising fresh reinforcements for a new offensive. The Earl of Salisbury arrived on the continent with an army of 450 men-at-arms and 2,250 longbowmen. They were bolstered by new levies raised in Normandy and Paris, and joined by auxiliaries from Burgundy and vassal dominions in Picardy and Champagne, to a total strength possibly as great as 10,000. At a council of war, in the spring of 1428, Bedford determined the direction of English arms should be towards the west, to stamp out resistance in Maine and lay siege to Angers. When Salisbury landed in France in July, however, he headed not for Angers, but straight for the city of Orleans. Like Gloucester, Salisbury believed the best strategy was to make a decisive military strike against the Dauphin, rather than Bedford's slow and steady approach to conquest. The choice of Orleans was legally dubious. Since the Duke of Orleans was at the time in English captivity, it would have been contrary to the customs of knightly war to seize the possessions of a prisoner. But this did not deter Salisbury. His campaign started very successfully with the capture of several fortified towns and crossings over the River Loire, and by October had reached his target. The city of Orleans, 80 miles south from Paris, lay on the north bank of the Loire, at the top of a loop in the river. Along with Paris and Rouen, it was one of medieval France's three largest and richest cities, enclosed by ancient walls with eight heavily fortified gates and more than 30 towers. On the 12th of October, Salisbury laid siege to the city from the south, 
concentrating his attention on capturing a stone bridge whose 19 arches span the Loire. On the south side of the river, separated from a bank by a drawbridge, stood a small fortress called the Tourelles. The English attempted to storm the fortress, which after initial setbacks was captured some days later. It proved to be a hollow victory. As the French retreated behind the city walls, they demolished the bridge behind them. They left the English stranded on the south bank of the Loire, on the wrong side of the river, to receive supplies from the north, and also potentially exposed to attack from the Dauphin's heartlands in the south. The English received another setback a few days later when a stone cannonball fired from the city struck a watchtower Salisbury was standing in. The commander died from his injuries eight days later. But rather than withdraw, the English decided to dig in for a long siege. As autumn turned to winter, it was clear an impasse had been reached. Both sides were short of supplies, and the only question was which side could hold out the longest. The defence of the city was led by John of Orleans, who figured that the key to getting rid of the English was to cut off the enemy supply line, which led to what is known to history as the Battle of the Herrings. The beginning of February, a convoy was assembled in Paris, consisted of 300 carts packed with provisions, mainly flour and salted fish, for the besiegers. John of Orleans and La Haye led a detachment of troops from the besieged city past the English blockade to link up with a joint French-Scottish relief army. On the 12th of February, after a bitterly cold night, they closed on the English convoy outside a village named Rivray, 13 miles northwest of Orleans. The leader of the convoy was the knight Sir John Falstaff, most famous today for his portrayal by Shakespeare. Falstaff, realising that his men were heavily outnumbered, drew his carts into a defensive circle and ordered the archers to drive their sharpened strakes into the ground in anticipation of the enemy attack. The French were confident of victory, but unfortunately for them, they argued with the Scots about the best tactics. The impatient Scotsmen decided to move in without coordinating their attacks with their allies. So, as the Scots moved forward, the French lines hesitated, uncertain of whether to follow or remain back as ordered. The English cavalry, sensing an opportunity to escape from what had seemed like an impossible situation, burst out of the wagon fort, overwhelmed the isolated Scots and threw back the hesitant French. Disorder and panic set in, and the French fell into retreat. More than 400 men died that day, among them the very last of the Scots army in France. In total, the English casualties numbered just four. The hungry English soldiers at Orleans could eat well that Lent, and their morale was greatly boosted. For French morale, the defeat at Rivray was disastrous. Bickering and recriminations immediately followed between their nobles, again threatening disunity. The Dauphin Charles seriously considered suing for peace, perhaps seeking exile in Scotland or Castile. In March 1429, John of Villiers made an offer to Philip of Burgundy, offering to turn Orleans over to him, to hold as a neutral territory on behalf of his captive half-brother, Charles, Duke of Orleans. Burgundy hurried to Paris in early April to persuade the English regent John of Bedford to take the offer. But Bedford, certain Orleans was on the verge of falling, refused to surrender his prize. In response, the disgruntled Philip withdrew his Burgundian auxiliaries from the English siege. Despite the loss of the Burgundians, the hopes for the relief of Orleans seemed as far away as ever. The position of Charles de Dauphin was desperate, for if Orleans fell, then the whole of the south of France would be left exposed to English invasion. 
but Charles did not give up hope, and just days after the disaster at Vouvray, the conflict made a dramatic turn in his favour, coinciding with the arrival and the scene of a young maid who is known to history as Joan of Arc. If you've listened to previous episodes, you'll be aware that I have a page on patreon.com, a website where people can support their favourite podcasters, artists, musicians, and the like. My offer for History of Europe Key Battles is that for $3 a month, you can gain access to bonus sets of episodes. If you join now, you'll see available episodes on the Battle of Lake Papus, or the Battle on the Ice, between the Teutonic Knights and the Russians, the Sicilian Vespers, which was a key battle of medieval Mediterranean. The Battle of Kudakova, a key battle between the Russians and the Mongols. And a set of episodes as well on the fall of Constantinople, 1453. Every contribution really helps to keep not only the Patreon.com going, but also the podcast as a whole. You can also help for free by giving the podcast a review on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher. Thank you very much for your support, or just for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. <laughs>